2013. This is the Hermetic Hour, and tonight we present the second program devoted to Jack Parsons' 1946 essay, Freedom is a Two-Edged Sword. With the reading of chapters 3 and 4, The Sword and the Spirit, and The Woman Girt with the Sword, you'll find that these writings are philosophical and spiritual meat. And they are the masterpiece of modern mystical, spiritual, and philosophical speculation. You will be amazed at the predictive quality of Parsons' perspective. It seems to be an epitome of 1980s feminist, environmental, and neo-pagan thought, written over 30 years before the flowering of these ideas. So, tune in and continue the journey into the future from the past with America's rocket scientist magician and the controls of the time machine. Now, you remember last week we did the first two chapters of Freedom is to a Sort, and that was an introduction to the overall uh, argument of the work, so to speak. And now we're going to get into the real meat of Parsons' philosophy, which you will find is polemic, but but with a difference, a considerable difference, in that he was an archetype of the original feminist uh, pagan proposition that came about uh, in uh, began to flower in the middle 1970s, uh, and finally uh, came to actually dominate the uh, the neo-pagan movement, uh, the witchcraft community, and uh, the various uh, neo-pagan expressions. Now, um, I'm going to get into this. I I want to point out to you that I that we don't necessarily agree with everything that Jack Parsons says. And, and uh, we don't necessarily agree, but we're overall we're very much in sympathy. Um, and here again, I repeat that we were the first uh, journal to publish the Parsons papers back in the early 1970s. And subsequently, uh, they were, they've been published um, by the OTO, and you can uh, get uh, Freedom as a Two-Edged Sword on Amazon. And I really strongly suggest, if you like what you hear, and if you're interested in what you hear, that you get uh, the publication Freedom as a Two-Edged Sword, 2001 publication uh, edited, edited by the Khalif, and I think that you'll find that uh, very, very interesting. Without further ado, let us start into Chapter 3. And as I said in the blurb at the top of the article here, this is the third installment of Frater Balerian's epic essay, Freedom as a Two-Edged Sword. It was written in 1950, two years before his untimely death. His message reaches across the gulf of years with a strange sense of urgency. For now, the freedom we had taken for granted, those freedoms are again being threatened. His exaltation of the divinity of man via art and science 
is an epitome of neo-romanticism, and his view of man's place in the universe is more neoplatonic than Gnostic. And this is Chapter 3, Freedom is a Two-Edged Sword, The Sword and the Spirit, by Frater Bellerian, and edited by Frater Thavion. At that time, I was known as Frater L.E. There is no evidence to show that man was created and accoutred to serve as God's regent upon the earth. There is no reason to believe that he is naturally good and kind, brave and wise, or that he ever was. On the contrary, there is much to show that he was a beast who took a strange turning in the jungle and blundered rather aimlessly into a mental world in which he was certainly not at home. There is much evidence that man is by nature cruel, cowardly, lustful, avaricious, and treacherous. He holds dominion over these terrible internal enemies and defends against the other predators, his fellow man, by virtue of his ferocity, his cunning, and his indomitable will. This is his beauty and his significance. But out of the blind primordial forces of sex and the survival urge, he has forged reason and science and spun the splendorous web of art and love. And if there is no other reason and no other significance, man himself has on occasion created reason and significance, standing as the maker of his gods, in a garden made fruitful by his own creative power. We think in terms of ourselves relative to the external universe. It cannot be shown, however, that this external universe is other than an extension of our own perception. But if we differentiate the internal from the external, we are still part of and not separate from the entire process of nature. We are made from the nova by way of the sun and built from the air, the rock and the sea, animated by the primordial fire of life. There are filaments in our consciousness that reach back to the first ancestor and extend to all other men and all other life with which we share a common creation and a common destiny. Here is the totality that the Greeks called Pan, all devourer, all begetter, life and death, good and evil, pain and pleasure, unity, duality and multiplicity, all things and beyond all things, the soul of night, and the stars. If in our folly we fear, we will ascribe the moral qualities to the lightning that strikes, to the star that shines, to the tiger that kills, then we will not hesitate to assign them also to the woman who gives and the man who takes. And thus we will define God and found a religion. And thus, we degrade the living universe 
into a bewhispered and irascible character endowed with immortal omnipotence and a hatred for our mistakes, or with those nature lovers who catch cold communing with the all in the park at night, we sink into the platitudinous sitzbaths of various religious science systems on our own way to the catalepsy of middle age. All nature partakes of the eternal sacraments of the life and death of ebb and flow of creation and destruction and regeneration. <laughs> These are the harmonies of eternity that change forever and never change. The cry of the baby is echoed in the tumult of the nova. Men, sons, and seasons pass and return again. The spate of semen is one with the jet of the stars and called the Milky Way. The mind that comprehends these immortal processes of love and in worship is an immortal mind that soars beyond time and death. We are of one age with Asclepius and Sophocles and Shakespeare. Of one blood with Moses, I would say, and Newton, the body changes and decays. All time cuckles all shapes of desires and all transient things. But the shape of desire, although transient, are the very vehicles of man's adventure. He cannot attain by denying these deeds, but by strengthening them, by training and bridling them with love and creative will until their wings are revealed. Sex and hunger are the raw stuff of art, and out of his passion, fury, and despair, the artist transmutes the shapes of terror and wonder into an eternal beauty. Always are the right way, when will and love are the guides. The grace and bounty of life are free to all, saint and sinner alike, who desire them. The voice of the wind, the poignancy of music, the shout of thunder, all cry out to man, daring him to know himself. Sunlight, sea and stars, and the splendor of a naked woman are the signs and the witnesses of a covenant that is forever. We know these things. We, we know them with the only certainty that is ever given to us. This is the beautiful, pitiable knowledge of childhood and first youth that the world denies and necessity circumvents. This is the knowledge of the poets, the artists, and the singers who are beloved and outcast by men and the mystics who the world calls mad. Please be quiet. And man, self-castrated and self-frustrated, flees down the corridors of nightmare pursued by monstrous machines, overwhelmed by satanic powers, haunted by vague guilts and terrors, all created out of his own imagination. He escapes into absurdity, drowns his spirit in pretense, worships brass gods of power and tin gods of success, then, shamed by his pretenses and frustrated by his self-denial, he projects his 
horror on imagined enemies, seeks release in scapegoats and false issues, thereby propitiating those bestial gods who have arisen from the shattered and the ends of his spirit with sacrifices of blood. Nothing is of its nature evil, and nothing is of its nature good. Evil is only excess. Good is simply balance. All things are subject to abuse and likewise susceptible to beneficial use. Balance does not consist in denial or excess in indulgence. Balance can only be obtained by exceeding. The elemental forces in man's nature are so tremendous that they can only be balanced by an ultimate self-expression. To place limitations and restrictions on this nature is to build a wall of plaster around the sun. If we chip an away at an eagle's wings or feed carrots to a lion, we will not uplift or improve either species. The fundamental purpose of religion is to attain an identity with a power which we believe to be greater than ourselves, whose omnipotence and immortality we can share. Having achieved some sense of this identity, we feel that we can cope with problems and attain ends with more confidence. The reliance on religion as well as the reliance on property can indicate a lack of self-reliance. We ourselves create this God of power. It is from our own individual self that his power is drawn, and this self is greater than any good which it creates. Therefore, to know ourselves is the highest form of wisdom, and to believe in ourselves is the highest form of faith. Science which seeks to know and art which seeks to interpret are two forms of love which constitute the only availing way of worship. That these two greatest expressions of the human spirit should be subservient to religion, politics, nationalism, and war is the ultimate blasphemy. We are now in the midst of a tremendous battle of forces contending for domination over the mind and spirit of man. It is not, unfortunately, a battle between good and evil, between freedom and tyranny, but rather a struggle of dogma against dogma and authority against authority. The contenders are fascism and communism. Each is a doctrine alien and hostile to the idea of freedom. Each says that we must choose between one or the other, and each is, in reality, identical. Each demands the absolute enslavement of the individual, the abnegation of the intellect and the subjugation of the will. The authoritarian is right, absolutely right, so right, that every extreme of falsehood, suppression, and tyranny is justified in the accomplishment of his divine ends. Behind his benevolent paternalism lurks the star chamber, the concentration camp, and behind his morality looms the stake in the inquisition of the old-time religion so many profess to walk for. 
And all these systems are old, older than human history. Freedom and democracy are the only new things under the sun, and they offend like the slaves and the slave masters alike. Come unto me, goes the old harlot's song. Come unto me, you weary and heavily laden. Surrender your intolerable burden of freedom, and I will fill your mouths with miracles, and your bellies will be full of food. Come with me, and I will confound your enemies and show you paradise. Look, you do not even have to change a name. Only keep the letter and deny the spirit, for the letter giveth life. She is harvesting the nations now, the old whore, for an appointment in the place called Armageddon. And there will be a hunting of free men in the name of freedom, and there will be prisons and pogroms in the name of democracy, murder and slavery in the name of brotherhood, and all for the sake of dominion over the minds and bodies of men. There is a choice, the choice of freedom, which has no other name and no other cause. Man, freed of his demons, without the need of a dog or the need of a creed, can of and by himself avail triumph and achieve significance. This is the faith of a liberal, belief in himself and the belief in man. There is no other way to the full stature of manhood. It is the long way, the hard way, through trial, error, failure, and heartbreak. But it is the way guided by science and inspired by art, leading at long last to the stars. This is our choice. We may believe in ourselves, believe in our fellow men, and in freedom, and in brotherhood, we may start to achieve here and now that paradise which has so long been relegated to the hereafter. Or, with the dogmatists and the positivists, the authoritarians, we can return again to the apehood from which we have so late arisen. If we wish identity with a greater power, let us seek union with ourselves, our total self raised to its highest potential of wisdom, knowledge, and experience. If we wish to unite with the universe, let us court the whole of nature, all experience, all truth, and the splendor of the awesome cosmos itself. For out there lies the great campaign that comes first and last, the ultimate adventure of the individual into himself. He must go down like Moses into his unknown self, out into the new dimension, out with Orpheus and the bark of Arthur, with Tammuz and Adonis, with Mithra and Jesus, into the labyrinths of the dark land, and there he will meet the mother and hear her final question, what is man? Thereafter, closed by the hearts of the cryptic mother, Close by the heart of the cryptic mother, he may find the grail, ultimate consciousness, total remembrance, instinct made certain, reason made real, for it is he, wonderful monster, embryo god, who has swung in a fish, shed the skin of the crocodile, peered from the eyes of the serpent, swung with the apes and shaken the earth, 
with a cramp of the Tyrannosaurus. It is he who has cried out on all crosses, ruled on all thrones, grubbed in all gutters, and it is he whose face is reflected and distorted in all heaven and hell. He is the child of the stars, the son of the ocean, the creature of dust, this wonder and terror called man. Uh, that concludes this chapter. And as I said, I I don't necessarily agree with everything he's saying here. I think that uh, he's uh, there's a tendency in that uh, to um, belittle uh, to belittle what we call God in the sense of the uh, this universal power that that uh, I personally believe that you know this power is far far greater than than, than ourselves. Uh, I think that uh, in this case, personally, um, I think Parsons is falling into into Crowley's error of uh, extolling the Adam Weishaupt Illuminati idea that there is, you know, and Adam Weishaupt was an out-and-out atheist, and uh, he didn't believe in any kind of God at all. And in fact, that's where the idea of uh, the Illuminati idea there is no God but man, which of course also goes via Crowley into the OTO. Uh, the problem with that is, of course, is that uh, if you stand down here on this little ball of rock uh, and look up at the night sky and realize that you're you're seeing galaxies with literally billions of worlds and and at least at least a billion of them inhabited by creatures more intelligent than we are, and this vast universe that somehow or other holds together and functions, uh, it's difficult to to believe that we are the supreme uh, we are the supreme beings. Although hermetic science, uh, not necessarily polyma, but hermetic science does does indicate that that we all have a divine spark within us and so that each one of us can find God and each one of us can be the center of his own universe. We we know that. So as I said, I'm not uh I, I, I find his Parsons work there inspiring, but I think it it, it is a bit just a bit hubristic. Uh that's my comment on that. All right, now let's get to uh uh, chapter 4 on Freedom as a Two-Edged Sword. And this is the chapter, this is the real uh, chapter that, that really presages the feminist movement and uh, and especially the neo-pagan feminist uh, movement. He's called the, the Woman Girt with the Sword, and my opening blurb on that was this. In this final chapter of his epic, magical, philosophical epic, written nearly 30 years ago, the former commander of the American OTO anticipates the feminist uh, movement and its neo-pagan aspects. His scathing yet perceptive indictment of patriarchal monotheism as a psychologically unbalanced and basically destructive system deserves careful study. In Jungian and Kabbalistic terms, he is right on. He also knew, even before the anthropologists reminded us, 
that there was a matriarchal age, that there was no matriarchal age, but rather an age of sexual equality and mutual respect when the womanly wellspring of intuitive understanding was the true fountainhead of religion. And with that short introduction, we'll get right into it. It is to you, woman, beautiful redeemer of the race, whom I address this chapter. That which stirs in you now is not madness, not sin, not folly, but life. This new life is the joy and the fire that will beget a new race and create a new heaven and a new earth. And when you were a child, did not the wind and the sun speak to you and did you not hear the mountain's voice, the voice of the river and of the storm? And have you not heard the whisper of the stars and the inevitable voice in silence? And have you not gone naked in the forest with the wind on your body and felt the caress of Pan? Your heart was swollen with spring, blossomed with summer, and saddened with winter. And these things are the covenant, and in them is the truth that is forever. You have sought companions as high-hearted as yourself and found them not. Save in the elusive memories of dream and song, for you found a blight over the world, a blight of silence and sorrow. Your companions walked in guilt and shame, in fear, in hate, in sin, and in the sorrow of sin. And there was only nervous laughter and furtive pleasure, unsatisfying and shameful. But be no longer sad, my beloved. Be joyous and unafraid. For within you is the song that shall shatter the silence, the flame that will burn away the drops. It is to you who are the redeemer from sin and sorrow, from guilt and shame, Woman of splendor incarnate, how long have you served in chains, a slave to the lust and guilt of pigs? How long have you writhed under the degradation of your holy name, whore, or suffered silently under the degradation called virtue? And how well have you known the stake, the rack, the whip, the chains of imprisonment, and even entombment in the service of your master. And was the bond fear? Was it weakness? Was it cowardice and inferiority? Oh, shame of man, it was none of these. It was love. A man was once crucified in in a redemption that failed, and yet if ten times ten million men were crucified, this infamy, infamy could not be redeemed. Husband, father, priest, jailer, judge, executioner, exploiter, seducer, destroyer, so has your lover mastered and defiled you, yet pity him for his heart love. But finally, there is an end, and then the beginning and all the future will be with you. For you are the mother of a new race, the redeemer and lover of the new men, the men who shall be free. I speak to you of men. Men desire three things of a woman, a mother greater than themselves, a wife less than themselves, and a lover equal with themselves. And against the mother they are in revolt, the wife they hold in contempt, and the lover ever eludes them. Consider the husband. 
how he throws his clothes around, his huge dirty dishes and housework, and asserts himself in a loud voice, and consider the homosexual, how he hates women and flees himself, fearing that he will, he will slay her, and consider the great lover, how he grasps for love and his hands close on nothingness. And these are bewildered, frightened children playing games against the dark. And those who wear brass and swords, who strut and slay, are they not the most frightened of all? And therefore pity them and forgive them. In the ancient world, there were men for a season before cities arose and they turned to gilded popinjays, gracefully accepting futility. And then came Christianity and anodyne for slaves, and enteric for barbarians whose deeds gave them indigestion and ultimately a whip for the slave masters. Faust was the prototype of the Middle Ages, but not the Faustus of whom Kit Marlowe tells. It was a darker Faustus, Gilderetz, who betrays the maid in his lust for power, and then after his fall and his failure, and the failure of his prayers, he descends to horror in his cellars. This theme lasted an age until man, appalled by his nightmares, turned finally to a dream of liberty. It is the voice of Voltaire, jaded, cynical, weary of folly, that sounds the opening bar of a tremendous mocking prelude. Tom Paine, one real man, broken and at last betrayed by all the wooden champions, Cagliostro, plotting the revenge of the Templars with a woman in her necklace, Will Blake, speaking uncomprehended with the tongue of angels. Shelley and his beautiful gesture, Swinburne, who almost recreated Helios before he too was broken. Byron, Pushkin, Gautier, all instruments in a prelude to a symphony that was never played as science. How it was to save us, that brave new world of Huxley's, Darwin and H.G. Wells, with only the voice of Spengler in descent, science remaking the world, an international language, a universal brotherhood beyond nationality, prejudice or creed, a beautiful vision, fallen like a house of cards, you creators of the new age who dare not speak, think, or move without permission from the military, you unfettered titans who will hang for speaking across one border. Where is your new world now, champions? Where is freedom? Where, what treasure have we lost? We must turn to woman for that answer. The key lies back 10,000 years ago in the age of Isis, that is mistakenly called the matriarchy. It was not a matriarchy as we conceive it, rule of club women, of frustrated chickens. In fact, it was not a rule at all. It was an equality. The woman, the woman was and is the priestess. In her reposes the mystery. She is the mother, brooding, if tender, the lover at once passionate and aloof, the wife. Revered and cherished, she is the witch woman. She stands co-equal with her mate, who is the chieftain, the hunter, the 
speaker and the doer. The woman is the priestess, guardian of the mystery, symbol of the unconscious, prophetess of dreams. Together they balance each other until the catastrophe of the patriarchal age. Arctivified by the monosexual monster Jehovah. And then, under the rule of priests, woman became an inferior animal, while man became isolated in his imagined superiority and found himself at the mercy of his own merciless intelligence. And it was total war between the emotions that must and the intellect that will not. In every patriarchal religion is a self-contradictory monstrosity. <coughs> they are dogmatic creeds that shift like straws in the wind of the intellect. Upon this shifting structure, man has failed. He knows the futility of such artificial systems, but he fights for them with all the sick fury his frustration could generate. In the process, he has lost his mother. His wife has failed him, and his lover eludes him. The mystery has gone out of the temple, banished by a senile and self-sufficient council of beards. Woman, woman, where are you? Come back to us again. Forgive, even if you cannot forget them. Serve once more in our temples. Take us by the hand, kiss us on the lips, and tell us we are not alone. Which woman, out of the ashes of the stake, rise again? It was in the Dianic cult that the old way continued. Those splendid and terrible women, Messalina, Tofana, Lovelison, and De Breneville, raised revenge to a high art. Others sought the forbidden mystery and the secret rites and purchased a brief reunion at an awful price. This was the hope in the Maid of Orleans, the dream of hopeless millions that the woman who was to redeem them had come at last. Her failure and her fate teach us that innocence is no protection. Be cunning, O woman. Be wise, be simple, be merciless. I have asked you to understand and forgive, but forget not overmuch. Trust nothing but yourself. Now I have spoken of those great poisoners, but there is a worse revenge. Know that all revenge is revenge on self. And the most terrible is that taken by a frigid woman. Count her in the tens of millions. The curse lies in the failure of her mate to be a man and her failure to be true to herself. But the cause is the dark guilt with which parents poison their children. There is also suppressed incestuous love and the fear of unwanted children. And yet those who have known of these things should have no shame therefrom. Strength is not born. It is gained by understanding and overcoming. Go free. Sing the old wild song. Evoe, evoe, Bacchus. Eopan, eopan, evoe, Babylon. Go to the mountains and the oceans and the forest. Go naked in the summer that you may regain the old joy 
love gladly and freely under the stars. But you say your body is not beautiful? Here is a secret. The body is molded by the mind. If you have embraced fear, repression, hate, then you may find your body repulsive. But go free, love joyously. And without restraint, run naked. Watch the cheeks flush, the breasts swell, and the simple contours develop from the flowing rhythms of life. Disease and deformity are bred in fear and hate. Therefore, be fearless, lovers, and ever beautiful. The woman is the priestess of the irrational world. Irrational, but how enormously important and how dangerous because it is unadmitted or denied. We do not want to be drunken, murderous, frustrated, poverty-stricken, and miserable without a cause. These conditions are not reasonable or scientific, and yet they do exist. We say we do not want war, but war seems to be a psychological necessity. Wars will continue until that need is otherwise fulfilled. We do not love or hate a person because it is reasonable. We are moved willy-nilly despite our reason and our will. By forces from the unconscious, irrational world, these forces speak to us in dreams, in symbols, and in our own incomprehensible actions. These passions can only be redeemed by intuitive understanding in the feminine province. Only after such understanding may we understand and intelligence will end and intelligence be truly effective, for otherwise they are blind and powerless against the tides of emotion. Woman, put away unworthy weapons. Put away malice and poison, frigidity and childishness. Draw the two-edged sword of freedom and call for a man to meet you in fair combat. A woman fit to be your husband and the father of your evil brood. Call upon him, test him by the sword, and he will be worthy of you. Together you will be archetypes of a new race. Somewhere in the world today, there is a woman for whom the sword is forged. Somewhere, there is one who has heard the trumpets of a new age and will respond. She will respond, this new woman, to the high clamor of these star trumpets, and she will come as a perilous flame and a devious song, a voice in the judgment hails a banner before the enemies. She will come girt with the sword of freedom. Before her, kings and priests will tremble. Cities and empires will fall, and she will be called Babylon, the scarlet woman, and she will be lustful and proud and subtle and deadly, forthright and invincible as a naked blade. Women will respond to her war cry, throwing out their chains. Men will respond to her challenge, forsaking foolish ways. She will shine as the ruddy evening star in the lurid sunsets of Gatardamara. She will shine again as the morning star when the night has passed and a new dawn breaks over the garden of Pan to you. 
O unknown woman, is the sword of freedom pledged. And uh, that concludes the uh, fourth chapter. And um, I'm sure you can see that that certainly certainly seems to be a a clarion call of the of the new of the new uh, pagan feminist uh, proposition, and uh, it put a curly scarlet woman into a new perspective. He Parsons maintained the idea of of Babylon, the scarlet woman, being uh, being certainly lustful and all that, but he gave her uh, he gave her actually more power and influence and and uh, and uh, leadership than uh, than Crowley attributed to her. Although uh, Crowley did say, as you recall, uh, that the Scarlet she was the Scarlet Woman in whom all power was given. Right? So perhaps Crowley himself realized that this was coming, although he uh, he, he was certainly not as, as, as willing to to bow down to woman as as as, as Jack Parsons obviously was. This is uh, this is quite a powerful thing, and uh, feel you this is written sometime between 1946 and 1950. Now there is one more chapter to Freedom as a Two-Edged Sword, but we did not publish it. And that is the sword in the state. And the reason why we didn't publish it was this was 1976 that we published Freedom as a Two-Edged Sword. And the sword in the state, uh, it, uh, I would publish it now if I was publishing Freedom as a Two-Edged Sword. I would, but then um, Cold War was going on, and some of us had security clearances and were working in aerospace in one thing or another, and it, uh, sort of state, is just a little bit too radical for uh, for that era. However, now, I, as I say, I, I'm not, I, I'd be, well, I'd still be somewhat critical of it, but, uh, so, if you would like to read the whole essay, including the sort of state, uh, then I suggest that you go to uh, go to Amazon or wherever and get yourself a copy of the 2001 edition of Freedom is Two Edged Sword, and you can read the whole thing. And uh, and uh, now I'd like to discuss what we have planned for next week, and um, and also uh, another. Uh, website that we have and another uh, radio station actually, another uh, radio production that we have besides their Medicare. And next week we're going to we're going to present the first of I hope several very, very, very fascinating magical occult stories. Uh and these, they're, they're very rare these days. You hardly ever hear of them anymore. But they're called the Tales of the Red Dwarf. Tales of the Red Dwarf. Now, the Tales of the Red Dwarf were written by one of my, one of my favorite SF uh, writers from back in the, in the Golden Age, a fellow by the name of Richard Sharp Shaver. 
And this may surprise you, those of you who are familiar with Shaver, you uh, may recall that he, at, at his editor's direction, he wrote his stories uh, in the style of Edgar Rice Burroughs, which was, well, I would say for, you know, teenagers, it's written, uh, written uh, in that style. And, um, but finally, when uh, the whole science fiction uh, hierarchy and, and uh, the publisher and and, uh, the, and even the, if you believe Palmer and the government and the rest of them told him to stop saying that his stories contained truth, then he started writing what uh, he had to call fiction. The strange thing about this is that his fiction turned out to be uh, a great deal closer to uh, what he was originally calling the truth than what the stories that uh, that he had claimed were based on the truth. And also, his fiction, at least the Red Dwarf stories, is remarkably good. It certainly is not in the style of Edgar Rice Burroughs. It's somewhere between somewhere between Abraham Merritt and James Branch Campbell, which, if you're used to Shaver's, or if you've read any of Shaver's uh, uh, Shaver mystery stories, you, you may, you'll, you'll be amazed, you're frankly amazed, at the, at the subtlety and the erudition, the imagination, and the, and the very, very uh, advanced occult concepts. In this uh, red, you know, red dwarf, in the red dwarf stories, and the red dwarf, by the way, is a is a character. He's about he's a dwarf, but he's a giant dwarf. He's yeah, about fifteen feet tall, but kind of pot bellied and, and and red, and he has horns and he has a tail. And he writes with his tail. He dips his tail in the ink, and he has a big book, and he writes continually writing stories in his book. So he. Yeah, you know, it's play on words, of course. He he writes his tales with his tail, and so he has lots of tales, but only one tail to write them with. Because he's you know, well, whatever. Anyway, uh, so he sits in this cave, and and he continually writes these tales. And he also, if people seek him out, he he will direct them to what they're looking for, whether they. Whether that's what they're looking for or not, they're going to they're going to find it. Wish they hadn't, probably. But the tales of the Red Dwarf are, I think, you'll find absolutely fascinating. They're very magical, and they're very mystical, and they're they're rather sophisticated. And now, what we're going to do with this is we're going to read uh, dramatically, read uh, maybe even with a little music and perhaps even some sound effects or whatever. And then we'll present this on the Hermetic Hour next week, the first tale of the Red Dwarf. Then we're going to move it over to our our new radio website station called the Seventh Ray Magical Mystery Theater. Now, so you look for that Google, and is Google the Seventh Ray Magical Mystery Theater, and you'll find it. And you can go over there, and and we will continue the Red Dwarf and and stories from Grillmaster and stories from uh, and then oh I got 
we we might even do a Crowley detective story, and we'll we're going to be doing these dramatic uh, stories over there. We already have Sherlock Holmes and the Necronomicon over there, which uh, you know remember we did on on uh, uh, the Hermetic Hour. But we have a we have a very very nice uh, edited version of that over there. And so we want you to uh, visit us over at the, the Seventh Ray Magical Mystery Theater of the Air. That's what it's called, Seventh Ray Magical Mystery Theater of the Air. So next week, and uh, good for the holiday season, you get to meet the Red Dwarf, and uh, and uh, the Red Dwarf will tell you one of his one of his fascinating, mysterious, and magical. Tales, T A L E S, which he writes with his T A I L, you know, and or whatever. So until then, until next week with the Red Dwarf, have a great holiday season and good magic. <laughs>